recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays, Christogenia.org. I have a few things to say before we get started. I, I, um, I, I've noticed that more people now are listening to these programs on the Christogenia radio streams than on TalkShoe. That's fine. I'm going to plan on continuing to maintain my TalkShoe presence because it's just another public outlet. But the um, there are four MP3 audio players or, or streaming radio players on Christogenia.org web pages. The top two players broadcast this stream. The larger server and the higher quality is actually the second player. Christogenia Live Radio 2, and I just um, put that up last week. The, um, the first player is still getting the greater share of, of the audience. The, the bottom two players are actually publicly listed on, on AOL Shoutcast radio pages, and, and they only play repeats. They play them around the clock. I don't change the programming on those very often, and I surely don't change it as often as I should. I'm going to be looking at installing all new programming hopefully next week on the, on the, the players, that, that the streams that play nothing but repeats. The, um, if, if demand has it, I, I can add two more radio streams. I have that capacity, and, and I may, if the, um, the demand for the live programs continues to increase, which it's been on, on an upswing, so that's, that, that's good, and I'm blessed with that. Thank you for listening. Today is um, Saturday, November 17th, 2012. Praise Yahweh, the God of true Israel. Tonight I have Sword Brethren again with me here. I, I hope I haven't spoke to him yet. Yes. Hello. Hello. Thank you for being here again. Hello, Brian. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for being here. And, and we're going to... Um, present part three of our series against the Paul Bashers. The material being presented here tonight originally appeared in Clifton Emmerheiser's 91st monthly Watchman's teaching letter in December 2005. It was the third in a series which, had, which I had written originally for Clifton back in October of that same year. With it, we will continue our presentation and response to the so-called Dr. H. Graber's allegations against the mission and the legitimacy of the Apostle Paul. It may be difficult to follow some of this material if you have not already read it at Christogenia or if you have not heard the previous two segments of this series of, of audio broadcasts. But the, um, Brian, you had remarked today concerning the sophistry of, of Graeber and, and how, um, well, elementary, elementarily stupid a lot of, this, of, of, of these accusations are. I called it sophomoric drivel and sophistry, if I recall correctly. Well, well right, it's horrible, but it has to be addressed. It, 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 it has to be addressed because so many, uh, I mean, I know a lot of otherwise, well, well I, I like to think that they're otherwise good people, in, in um, various stages of Christian identity learning, who, who are actually 
who actually bought this this sophistic drivel and, and ran with it, and, and they still do to this day, and, and, and they bash the Apostle Paul. They, they spend more time dismantling the scriptures that, than they do in, in teaching their brethren the, the truths of, of the scripture and, and, and the, um, the, the real meanings of the covenants and the promises of God and, and who the objects of those covenants covenants and promises are and Paul and Luke are the place to go in scripture to prove the identity Christian perspective of the Bible and and they, they these people have actually become tools of the enemies of God and Christ and it's sad but they have and I hope that some of them are listening well, I'd say it's through ignorance on their part but Graber he, he has to know what he's doing well, well, he has to know what he's doing. We'll we'll get into that at the very last segment of of this um, presentation tonight, where Graeber actually, I I don't know how stupid he could be to misquote a portion of Eusebius the way he did and use it to attack Paul. To attack Paul, it, it, it he has to be either really, really stupid, which which is um, I, I don't know. It's hard for me to imagine, or he has to be a purposeful deceiver, one or the other, and we'll see that at the end of this of this segment tonight. Well, well, would you like to commence with the next section of Graeber's slander? Reference J, the law. The doctrine of the professed Apostle Paul very emphatically negates the laws of God. By what authority? We read in Romans 1.17, For therein is righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The just shall live by faith, not the law. Reference J2. Here we need to point out how Paul many times misquotes the prophets of the Old Testament. Section J continued. This is quoted from Habakkuk 2.4, which reads, The just shall live by his faith. Again, Paul says in Romans 6.14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Certainly we can understand this because the the law was not given to the Gentiles, but neither did Jesus Christ offer salvation to the Gentiles, because they do not need it, for the original sin was not imputed upon them. Uh, I hate to interrupt here, but this this seems awfully familiar. Have we read this before? Well, well, we read this at the end. uh, I think we read it in part at the end of our last segment. But, but I'm going to address facets of it again. The, oh, okay. uh, the, the problem, no, notice that Graeber is caught up in the Jew-Gentile terminology, the mainstream. Right. Now, now, Graeber wrote this, well, when he wrote this, he was supposedly a member of the Church of Jesus Christ, Christian, and, and um, uh, which is a Christian identity. I'm sorry, the Church of Christ in Israel well, which is a Christian identity church and the church that ordained me in December of 2000. You should know better than this mainstream Jew-Gentile business. Well, well, being a member of a supposed Christian identity church, he should know better than the Jew-Gentile business that, than, than to present any um, biblical arguments using the false Jew-Gentile dichotomy of mainstream Judeo-Christianity. The word ethnos which is what the, the, Greek, the, the Greek word that the word Gentile was translated from. Gentile isn't even a translation of, 
ethnos because Gentile isn't even really an English word. They coined the word. They invented the word to create a false dichotomy. The word ethnos simply means nation, and it does not mean non-Jew in, in its original sense by any means. Absolutely. To continue then, Ephesians 2.15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Romans 4.15-16, through 16, because, the, because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Paul was telling us that if we repeal the laws of God, then there can be no sin. That is the same as if we repealed all criminal law, then we would have no crime. And th- this man also has a very bizarre concept of crime and the law, since if you do something that's intrinsically, inherently wrong, whether or not there's a law in the book, it's still a crime. You know, he, he's getting into this whole malum and say and malum prohibitum, isn't he? What's prohibited just by nature of being prohibited and what's prohibited in law? Well, well, right. I, I mean, simply because the law itself is done away with doesn't mean that any particular act is still, um, it isn't wrongful anymore. And that's where, where he's making his, that, that's where he's confused. And, and that's why he finds conflict with Paul, because he simply doesn't understand that. What does Jesus tell us concerning the law of God? Jesus tells us in Matthew five seventeen through 18, Think not that I am come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, not one jot or tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Emphasis added. Has heaven and earth passed, or did Jesus change his mind? We also read in John 14:15, If ye love me, keep my commandments. And again, in 1 John 2, 4, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Who do you believe, Jesus or the professed apostle Paul? Paul tells us over and over again that the law was negated by the cross. If that is true, why did Jesus Christ not give us one word of evidence that this is so? Well, well, actually, he didn't have to, and there is evidence, and and we'll discuss that. First, let me say that that, that, um, Christians fail to distinguish between the basic moral laws of God, which are written in our hearts, which are... Um, basically encoded in the Ten Commandments, and the actual Levitical law, which was imposed, and and it's found in Deuteronomy also, but the Levitical law governed the priests, the law in Deuteronomy governs the people, the the law in Deuteronomy is what the the Levites read to the people on the Sabbath days, But, but those laws were imposed for the government of the kingdom. And, and were enforced by the Levitical priesthood. And the Levitical priesthood passed and, and was negated by the ending of the Old Covenant when the children of Israel were put out of the kingdom and divorced from God. Abraham, in Genesis chapter 26, four, verse 4, Abraham is credited with keeping the commandments and statutes and laws of Yahweh Long before the Levitical, the Levitical law was ever imposed, we see that there are moral laws of God which transcend the, the Levitical law. And, and people confuse the two, and, and most Christians, even identity Christians, fail 
to make the distinguishment that there are laws of God which exist, which are eternal, but which, which we should always seek to keep, and they're encoded in the, in the, in the basic Ten Commandments. There, there are the Levitical laws which were created for, but which were handed down for the administration of a particular kingdom at a particular time. The children of Israel were bound to the Levitical law when the children of Israel um, went off into sin, they were all liable to death under the, the Levitical law. Yahweh promised that they would not die, Jeremiah chapter 31, that they would always be a nation, even though they were bound to a law and an oath that made them liable to death. The only way that Yahweh, that Yahshua Christ, who is Yahweh come in the flesh, could fulfill the law and the prophets without executing the punishments of the law against the children of Israel was to die himself, which he did, which Paul explains in Romans chapter 7. If you don't understand that basic, simple concept, you will never understand redemption relating to the children of Israel and why it was necessary for Christ to die on the cross, period. You'll never understand that concept. It's clear to me that Graeber does not understand that concept. I am going to quote, and I quoted this last night, and, 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 and it's sad that so many people don't understand what's being said in Daniel chapter 9. And they all love to point to Daniel chapter 9 because it's the clearest prophecy of, of, of the, um, the Messiah and his coming and his death. Let's read Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins. How do you make an end of sins? Did people stop sinning? Because the apostles tell us that any man who says he doesn't sin is a liar, right? We've all done wrong in our lives. We've all sinned according to the measurement of the Ten Commandments and the Old Testament law. How do we make an end of sins in the sacrifice of Christ? This is talking, this is a, a messianic prophecy now. Okay. Well, Bill, I also I want to just interject here and point out that some people seem to think, oh, um, Paul's advocating just abolishing the law to do do away with sin, but Paul's never said that, and I don't think anybody in the Bible's ever taught that. Jesus frequently said, "Go forth and sin no more." He he didn't tell people, "You're you're good to go for the next week. Go sin for another five days, and just make sure you hit up the confessional booth on Saturday." Well, well, exactly, and this is what Paul um, actually. He didn't really struggle with explaining it. He struggled with making people understand it. And this is what the book of Romans is actually all about from chapters 2 through chapter 8. The book of Romans is all about the um, relationship of the children of Israel to the law, the fact that they would no longer be judged by the law. They would be judged by, by mercy and, and, and have life because of the promises which God made to our fathers. And, and, and um, because we wouldn't be judged by the law doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek to keep it. 
And, and that's what the book of Romans is all about. And that's what Paul's explaining. And, and the, the, the ending of the Levitical law and the judgments of the Levitical law against the children of Israel are a matter of prophecy. And one of those prophecies is here in Daniel. Seventy weeks are determined upon my people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression. To end transgressions, you have to end the law, because men don't stop sinning. To, and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to, seek, to, to seal up the vision and the prophecy and to anoint the most holy. And, and they're the people of God. And that's what happened there. And, and the law, with the sacrifice of the Messiah on the cross, the law, would, the, the children of Israel would no longer be judged under the law because the contract is void when the husband is dead. And that's what Paul explains in Romans chapter 7. The children of Israel would not be judged by the law, but we as individuals... We as nations should seek to, 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 to um, follow the law written on our hearts and, and to judge righteously. And Paul commends the Romans in Romans chapter 2 for establishing a society founded on the rule of law. And, and he explains that and tells the Romans that they fulfilled the prophecy by following the law written on their hearts. That they, that they sought to found a civilization based on the rule of law, which they did. That's what Paul explains in Romans chapter 2. Paul explains in Romans chapter 3 that we seek, we seek to establish the law. If we seek to follow Christ, we seek to establish the law. Paul explains at the very end of Romans chapter 3 and, 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 and makes that very assertion. That do we make void the law through faith? Nay, we, we establish the law. And, and that's the last verse of Romans chapter 3. That the, um, Paul is accused here by Graeber of many times misquoting the Old Testament. And, and that's a blatant lie. Graeber made the, made the assertion but didn't point out one example of a misquote of the Old Testament. The majority of Paul's quotes of the Old Testament, the, the vast majority of them agree word for word with the Septuagint, with what we know as the Septuagint today, the Greek translation of scriptures. Often Paul's simply only paraphrasing rather than quoting, which happened a lot in, in ancient times, and, and it happened a lot in the other Gospels and the other writings of the New Testament. Quote marks in Greek, they belong to modern translators. Can we assume, though, when somebody like Paul is paraphrasing or quoting that he's in a way validating the source, and if he's quoting or paraphrasing Luke, he wouldn't do that unless he knew Luke were valid? Well, well right, exactly. And, and um, you, you know, what, what is a quote? In the first century, they didn't have the sense of exact quotes that we have today. And, and, and am I lying if perhaps... Well, let's say that um, let's say that you owe somebody a hundred dollars, and you promise to pay that somebody twenty-five dollars a month for four months. And you, the quote that you make is, "I will pay you twenty-five dollars each month for the next four months." And, and the next day, somebody asks me, "What about the hundred dollars Brian owes so and so?" And I said, "Oh, Brian said he'd pay it by February." 
did I lie? Did I misquote you? No. Capture the essence of it. Well, well, right, exactly. As long as I capture the essence of it, I can't be accused of misquoting you, right? That that's the that that's the um, a, a lot of times the the New Testament paraphrases the old, and it can't be considered a misquote. A lot of times the quotations are exact. Most of the time the quotations are exact from the Septuagint, not from the King James Version. And, and a lot of times it, they match the Masoretic text and not the Septuagint. And there are occasions where they match the Aramaic Targums and neither the Septuagint nor the, 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 um, the Masoretic text. So, so when, when, we follow, when we accuse Paul of misquoting the Old Testament, we should have specific examples, right? And, and Graeber doesn't have them. And the circumstances of, of quotes and, and fuzzy quotes and paraphrases and, and differences between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text, that they, those differences exist in every single book. That They're just most um, outstanding in Paul because Paul was the, the, um, the, the writer who quoted the Old Testament the most and, and, and had the, the most prolific amount of, of writing that that's all that there's no um that there are really no misquotes mis of the old testament anywhere in in the new testament or in paul i'll i'll give an example paul says um and, and graber refers to this passage here and, and I, i'll elucidate on it paul says in Hab paul quotes habakkuk 2 4 in romans and he says the just shall live by faith now, in, in the Masoretic text, Habakkuk 2.4 says, the just shall live by his faith. In the Septuagint, Habakkuk 2.4 says, in the Greek and in the English of Brenton's translation, the just shall live by my faith. So what is it? In, in the Masoretic text, it says the just will live by his faith. In the Septuagint, it says the just will live by my faith. In, in Romans, Paul says the just will live by faith. You, you see what I mean? Which one's right? Did Paul lie? Did Paul misquote the scripture? If he misquoted the scripture, which scripture did he misquote? Did he misquote the, the Septuagint? Or did he misquote the Masoretic text? <laughs> or is there another version that Paul quoted perfectly? Or, or did Paul just say his or my? Which one is it? Well, I'll just put the just will live by faith. And, and does it capture the essence of it? Well, well Graeber um, tries to use Habakkuk 2.4 as, as an example of Paul's um, doing away with the law. And, and let me, let, let, if we looked at Habakkuk, why did Yahweh say in Habakkuk, because Habakkuk is quoting God, why did he say the just will live by faith? If we look at Habakkuk, Habakkuk actually, um, let, let, if we look at the reason for Habakkuk's prophecy, in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 4, it says, Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment does never go forth, for the wicked does compass about the righteous. Therefore wrong judgment proceeds. That's the reason why Habakkuk, the, Yahweh gave the words to Habakkuk 
the just will live by, by, by my faith or, or by faith or by his faith or, or whichever one of the three versions he said, whichever one is original, the just will live by faith. That's why he said it, because judgment is not righteous because the wicked have taken over the, the, the priesthood and the kingdom. Well, well, at the time of Habakkuk, Jerusalem was infiltrated with Canaanites, with the Kenite scribes mentioned in, in, in 1 Chronicles chapter 2 that, that were the scribes in Judah. Judgment was already perverted. Jeremiah 8.8 8 says, so you think you have the law. Well, well the pen of the scribes has, has, has turned it into a lie. I'm paraphrasing Jeremiah 8.8. 8. It, it's it, it's um, Graber is a deceiver. Paul did not negate the law. Paul constantly gave moral injunctions and, and and advised people to keep them, and 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 told us that we should seek to establish the law and, and to follow the law written in our hearts. But the Levitical law was done away with on the cross. The 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 judgments against the children of Israel under the Levitical law, which they were still obliged to, were done away with when the husband died on the cross, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 7. That's a matter of prophecy fulfilled, as we see in Daniel chapter 9. Christ fulfilled the law and the prophets. He fulfilled the law by dying on the cross so that Israel would not have to die because Israel was under penalty of death for having committed adultery against God all the way back when the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations occurred as punishment, and Yahweh divorced Israel. That doesn't mean because Yahweh divorced Israel that Israel was free from the law of adultery, which the children of Israel had committed against Israel. Yahweh the husband. The only way that Yahweh could be could spare Israel was by dying himself on the cross. That's why Christ had to die on the cross to redeem the Otherwise he would have had to invalidate the law. Well well right, and, and he said not one jot or tittle of the law will fail. That's the reason for redemption. That's how he bought us back. Because once he died on the cross, he could remarry Israel as he promised. So what do most mainstreamers... The law was fulfilled in his death on the cross. What do the, the mainstreamers think about salvation? They think Jesus just came because the world was a bad place and he wanted to die on the cross so we could all accept him as our own personal savior and yeah, our friend. Right. And they can't explain why it was necessary. They, 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 they just come up with vague generalities and, and they really can't. They don't understand the atonement or the salvation. Not at all. And they don't know who it was for. Not at all. I mean, really, can they even properly call themselves Christians? They don't understand anything about the faith they claim to believe in. And what little they do know, they pervert and twist. Well, well absolutely. But sadly, um, Christ supposed identity Christians such as H. Graber and all of the Paul Bashers who follow him 
that they really don't understand the relationship of Israel and, and the law and, and Christ and, and God and why Christ had to die to free Israel from the law. And that's what Paul's explaining. And, and then Paul goes hand in hand at, after he explains that the children of Israel are free from the law. And the other apostles agree with that. The other apostles agree with that 100%. James talks about the liberty we have in Christ. He means the liberty from the letter and judgments of the law. Peter talks about the liberty we have in Christ. And he means the liberty which we have from the judgments in the letter of the law. And Peter says, don't use your liberty as a cloak for, for maliciousness. Well, we have that liberty because all Israel will be saved. That's how we have that liberty, and that is how we're all saved, because all men sin. And, and as the Apostle James says, anybody who violates one point of the law is liable for the whole law. In other words, if you keep the law, you better keep the whole thing. And Paul explains that many times. Paul explains that any man being circumcised, if you feel you have to be circumcised to achieve your righteousness, you better keep the entire law because you have rejected the grace, the mercy of Christ. You have rejected his sacrifice on your behalf. If you feel that you have to keep the law in order to be considered righteous, where the real righteousness of God is racial. The real righteousness is that Yahweh will only accept the children of Israel and has rejected all other races, other, all of the bastards. All of the promises are only for the children of Israel. Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up if you're not one of the children of Israel, you're not getting into the kingdom of God. I think about the story of Noah, and it doesn't say he was found perfect in his behavior, or perfect in his conduct, or he perfectly observed every letter of the law. It says he was perfect in his generation. Yeah, right. He was perfect in his descent. So we could assume, though, that he, he, he didn't, you know, eat, live, you know, breathe, sleep, and dream the law every second of every day, and he perfectly upheld it. I mean, right. we could assume that he was probably a pretty decent man who tried his best, but he probably had some failings, but he was perfect in his ancestry. If, if Christians keep the commandments of God and, and love their brother and, and work for their community and their kindred, that's where we earn our reward in heaven. That's where we seek our reward in heaven. That's the treasure that we lay up in heaven. That has nothing to do with our salvation. Our salvation was achieved by Christ on the cross, and we're either children of Israel or we're not. And if we're not, it doesn't matter. If we are, then we can't do anything to affect our salvation because Christ already affected that for us. How could we do anything to improve on that? How could we? A lot of people. There's a lot of people out there who they don't have the right garment on, they don't have the right uniform, and they're inviting themselves to the wedding feast, but they're not on the guest list. Well, well, absolutely. Would you like to proceed with the next reference engraver? Right to continue with Graber, reference K. Graber states. Divergent Pauline doctrine. Let us 
document some more of the Apostle Paul's confusing and contradictory doctrine. Paul tells us in Romans 1.4, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, emphasis added. Here Paul tells us that Jesus was not the Son of God until he qualified himself by the spirit of holiness and after his resurrection. Matthew tells us that Jesus was born the Son of God by the Virgin Mary. Who do you believe, Matthew or Paul? Now, I wonder, though, did Matthew know this from the, the very moment he met Jesus? Because if, if I'm not mistaken, you know, Jesus asked Peter, you know, who do men say that I am? And then, you know, he asked Peter, who do you think that I am? Or who do you believe I am? And Peter told him, and he said, you know, blessed art thou, you know, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed it on thee, but my Father in heaven. Is there any indication when Matthew, when, when this was real on the Matthew, when did Matthew... Well, well no, there, there really isn't, and Matthew doesn't even come into the picture until Matthew chapter 9, right? Uh, I mean, by his own pen, right? He, he's sitting in the tax office, and, 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 and Christ told him to come follow me, and he got up and he followed him. However, Matthew's first nine chapters are written, or, or perhaps eight chapters, right, are written vicariously, right? They're written, it's an eyewitness account of other people, which Matthew recorded to begin his gospel, right? Right. Well, well um, that, that point is moved. Well, what this really is, is this is an example of one of those really bad King James translations that Paul's being blamed for, right? That, that's what this is. Romans 1.4, I'll admit, it is a difficult verse to translate. And here, Graver criticizes Paul only by the bad translation of this verse, which is found in the King James Version. I'm going to read it from the King James Version, um, if I could find it here in a second. I have Bible works in front of me on my computer screen. I don't have it. And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. And that's a real bad translation. The, the, um, in April of 2000, which is when I translated Romans, right? That's when I began my translation of the Christogenian New Testament. In April of 2000, I rendered Romans, who has been distinguished as a son of Yahweh or God, in the ability through sanctity of the Spirit to rise up from the dead, Yahshua Christ our Prince. The, the, um, the, the key word there is that word, the Greek verb horizo. And the Greek verb horizo by no means can ever be translated declare, as the King James has done in this verse. The meaning of the word means to mark out or bound, to appoint, to decree, to specify, but it means to make a boundary, to mark something. And that's its basic meaning. Paul is indicating that the resurrection of Christ made the assertion that Christ is the Son of God, the, the coming Messiah, an indisputable fact. That's what Paul means by Romans 1.4. He's not saying that the resurrection made him the Son of God. What he's saying is that the fact that he was resurrected distinguished him as the Son of God. In other words, it proved it beyond all doubt. It made it an, an indisputable fact and, and that he was the Son of God. The resurrection was the first device which Paul uses 
to present that fact to the Romans. And that's all Paul is saying there, that the resurrection distinguished him as the Son of God above all other things. And, and, and that's what Paul is using as a rhetorical device to prove the divine connection which Christ had. So Graeber's assessment is based on a poor King James translation, and it's, it's um, a dishonest assessment that he didn't look into the, in, into the meaning of the Greek. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Well, would you? Well, well, if you don't have a comment, you're welcome to proceed. Well, I think Graeber just once again shows that his idea of studying the Bible is just to crack open a, a, maybe a, a Bible on the hotel nightstand, read a few pages, and say, "Oh, look at this! What this word says? This word says this, and oh, it says Jew here and Gentile there." And he never gets to, he doesn't even get a concordance, let alone do any sort of word study. Well, well, right. Reading the Bible doesn't make us an authority on Scripture. And um, studying the Bible in English doesn't make us an authority on Scripture. It, it makes us an authority on somebody else's interpretation of Scripture. That's just the way it is. Uh, I mean, if you've only read the King James translation, I'm sorry, you're not an authority on Scripture. That's the way it is. It's not, I'm not trying to beat my chest, pump myself up, pump anybody up. If you've only read the King James translation, you can't be an authority on Scripture. You can only be an authority on the King James translator's translation and interpretation of Scripture. That's all you can be. Yet you, can't, yet you might know what the Bible contains, and, and you could know it real well. And I know a lot of men that, that can run circles around me with the King James translation because they have so many verses and passages memorized, but they don't know the story, and, and they don't know the underlying languages and, and meanings of, the, of what they understand to be the Bible. There's a lot of things they don't know that they're totally ignorant of, and they make a lot of mistakes because they fall into the same traps and misunderstandings that the King James translators have fallen into. There's a lot of flaws in the King James Bible. Knowing it backwards, forwards, word for word, every verse, every passage, that, that's nice, and, and it's useful, but it doesn't make you an authority on Scripture because you, you don't understand the original languages, the original Greek, and, and you don't understand where they made their mistakes. And, and there's a lot of um, knowledge that's lost in translation and a lot of understanding that's lost in translation. It's very difficult to translate from, from Greek into English in any translation, including my own. That's just the way it is. That the um, if you want to be an authority on scripture, you really have to understand um, the context, the history, and the original languages that the scripture was written in, and that should be the goal of anybody who is going to set himself up as an authority and, and start denigrating parts of the Bible. And, and Graeber obviously doesn't have that right. He, he, See, he comes off as just a um, surface reader of Scripture who perceives some inconsistencies 
and starts attacking Paul for those perceived inconsistencies, which really aren't inconsistencies at all. If he were any sort of scholar, he would he wouldn't fall into this whole Jew Gentile dichotomy, this false system. Well, well, right. And anybody in Christian identity that sees that a critic of the Bible is lost in in Judeo Christian interpretations, which are we which Christian identists know to be false, that they have to dismiss that person, that they can't right. take that person seriously, that they have to at least look very critically at everything else that person says. And there's truth in everything, but that doesn't mean that it's good. That that doesn't, if a little arsenic in a brownie, and you're not going to eat the brownie. Uh, I mean, the flour, the nuts, the cocoa, the, the butter, that they all might be of the highest quality. Excellent ingredients. But if there's a little arsenic in that brownie, you're a fool to eat it. Exactly. I mean, you have a nice glass of refreshing, cool ice water. You put a milliliter of gasoline in it. I'm not drinking the water. Well, well, yeah, right. So when when I see somebody on some Christian fundamentalist form write Yeshua instead of Yahshua, I know that he's probably reading a lot of sources by rabbis. Exactly. If you see Yeshua spelled with an E, you will know that that person is heavily influenced by Jewish sources. That's where he got that word from. That is what he is a reflection of. And, and little signals like that tell me a lot about a person because it tells me what they've read, what they've studied, and, and what's running through their minds and how they're thinking. And, and the person might be good. Yet, you know, I could have a real good computer, and if I let some Pakistani write the programs for it, it's going to be garbage. Yeah, right. You have the best hardware in the world. If you don't have the right software forget it. They're giving you a glimpse into their worldview when they use terms like Yeshua. And Graeber, I would say with with a guy like Graeber, it doesn't even really matter what translation he reads, because most all modern translations are pretty much the same, you know, New International Version, King James Version, and the, the King James only crowd, it seems that they're very adamant and vehement about defending a C- minus, D plus translation of the Bible, and they think that their Bible is the best out of all the other you know, all the other translations available, and what's that really saying? It's like the the valedictorian in that New Orleans high school that had a 2.0 grade point average. So maybe the King James version, you know, until yours came out, maybe it was one of the the best translations. But out of all the other translations, that's not saying much. Well, well, right. I could defend every word of the Greek in the Christianity New Testament, but I wouldn't discourage people from reading other translations. Uh, I'd invite them to read the other translations. Uh, I think they should. Uh, I mean, if, if you can't read the Greek, you have to read all the translations you can. Read the Christogonian New Testament. Read the other translations, too. Compare them. And, and that, that's, you're a better person for it. Compare them. Ask the questions. Get yourself a concordance. Don't take my translation as, as gospel. Uh, I wouldn't cut though. I always do. If Graeber told me he owns a concordance, I'd have trouble believing it. And if he does own it, he's probably using it as a paperweight. I don't think he's actually, you know, using it as a, as a tool. He's not reading it. Well, well, that's probably true of most people that own concordances, to be honest with you. And, and I've seen a lot of people misuse the concordance because they don't understand it, because they haven't read the fine print. All right. Shall I do um, part L? Yes, please.
Art L. Graber's Tate. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 15 through 19, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth, no, no, no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and have given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the words of reconciliation. Here, Paul completely removes Jesus Christ from recognition by saying, now that Jesus has accomplished this miracle on the cross, we know him no more, and we are now reconciled to God. Paul does not acknowledge that Jesus Christ and God are one and the same being. John 10.30, I and the Father are one. John 14.9, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. What Paul is saying is that now Jesus' task is finished. Now we should look to God, end of graver. And I just want to say that the idea that we know him no more, I think Paul's just saying that he's gone and he's no longer amongst us. He's no longer with us. And Jesus even said that, I am with you but a short time. The poor will always be with you. Well, well, right. We have to know his spirit, and 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 we have to know him through the spirit, and and that comes, that that is initiated by knowing the gospel, right? That, that's how that is initiated. At two Corinthians five fifteen through nineteen, Paul explains that we should not live after. In other words, we should not live according to or in relation to the flesh. We shouldn't follow our fleshly lusts. And desires, that's all he's saying, but after the spirit instead. In other words, we should seek the spiritual rewards of life and not the carnal rewards. We should seek to know Yahweh spiritually and not as a man, even if anyone who had read Paul's letter had known him in that manner. And there were very possibly people that would read 2 Corinthians who saw Christ in the flesh, right? But he's saying you're, you're not going to know him after the flesh. You better know him after the spirit. Graver says Paul does not acknowledge that Jesus Christ and God are one and the same being. And, and that's a blatant lie. And I run into this all the time because I'm always talking. People might take one snippet of my talk out of context without knowing everything else that I've talked about and, and all of my other positions and accuse me of holding a position which I don't hold because they've taken something out of context, right? But Graver should know better if he's actually read Paul. He just quoted Paul as saying that God was in Christ reconciling us to him. Well, well if God was in Christ, that's the exact equivalent of such an acknowledgement that Christ and God are one. Paul explains elsewhere, and, and he quotes the Old Testament doing so, that the body is just a vessel. The body is just a vessel, right? Christ referred to it as a temple, right? The temple, the body is the temple that our spirit dwells in. Paul has explained in his letters that the body is a vessel that the spirit dwells in. The spirit is the real us. When the flesh passes, that spirit still lives. Graber has no understanding of that, evidently. Paul said of Christ, 
in Colossians 2.9 that in him dwells all the fullness of the divinity bodily. That is acknowledging that Yahweh is Christ in the flesh. And, and, and Craver is a liar. It's that simple. It, it's a false accusation. And, and, and nobody will know Christ after the flesh if you were in Corinth when Paul wrote this letter because he departed from this world. So what's Graber's problem? He just said he was going to depart, and he did. Well, well, Graber's problem is that he's a prosecutor who will throw everything at his his his, um, his target that that he could make stick, right? And it doesn't wash. It, it's just a false accusation after false accusation, all throughout. Very pharisaical. Ah, your pre- well, yes, it is very pharisaical. And it's it, it's well, well, this is an, an attempt to discredit Paul of Tarsus so that the Jews could start pulling apart the New Testament in, in the minds of people. And, and it's just another attack. But this attack came within Christian identity. And, 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 and it did a lot of damage. And, and that damage is still reverberating through the Christian identity community. And, and Graeber was only one of its instruments. W.G. Finley was another of its instruments. The, the clown Clayton Douglas, who, who published this, the, the, the papers of another clown called, that calls himself Brother Nazariah, who's probably some kind of Jew, he was another one. Um, Joseph Jeffers was another one. Uh, another Paul Basher that, that a lot of Christian identists took off after. It, it's incredible. That it's incredible that anybody buys all this sophistry and all these lies and, and all these misrepresentations, but it has to be addressed for that reason. Because Ralph Daigle and, and Jerry Kirk and, and a whole lot of other clowns have, have followed after this stuff. Gary Blackwell, and I don't know how many others, but that, that there are people that... that um. That, that I talk to from time to time on Facebook, who are Paul Bashers. That there are um, well, one of the most notable Paul Bashers is that clown Dave Jones, and and um, he, he's one of them. He's a Paul Basher, and, and and he's a Paul Basher to this day. He'll, oh, Paul, he he says, oh, Paul said he was. Paul admitted he was a Jew. Well, well, these people will correct the word Jew to Judean. Everywhere else in the New Testament, except for where it comes out of Paul's mouth, that, then he's a Jew. Even though the Greek says Judean. So why don't you correct it there? Why don't you correct it in that place? Because you want to make Paul a Jew, because you don't like Paul. It, it's because they, see, they blame Paul for, universalist, for universalism, because the Judeo-Christians quote Paul's passages the most, in, in their that their um, defenses of universalism, well, well, Paul wrote the most, right? But you could find universalist statements in John if you want to take them out of context. You could find them in Matthew if you want to take them out of context. So, so they're not taking the passages in Paul out of context. John three sixteen. You want to blame that on Paul? 
they that that they blame everything else on Paul. Why why not blame the, the Universalists love to take John three sixteen out of context and, and misquote it and abuse it. Is it Paul's fault that he happened to write the most epistles and that they are the most abused? No. It's not Paul's. Don't blame Paul for that. His, all of his epistles prove Christian identity, every one of them. And, and it's sad that these people don't examine the translations and examine the Greek. Because Paul was the first Christian identity preacher. And that's why the Jews want to destroy Paul. Because he had the audacity to take Christianity to non-Jews. And if it wasn't Paul's writings, it'd be someone else's writings that they would twist well, and distort. Well, of course it would be. But if it weren't for Paul of Tarsus, the, the dispersed children of Israel would never have received the gospel. Paul was the glue that stuck the gospel to the lost sheep, for better or worse. Would you like to proceed? Reference M. Graber states, Paul tells us in Romans 2.16, in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel, by whose gospel? Here Paul admits that he is not preaching the gospel of the kingdom, but rather his own gospel. Well, well you know, this argument is really childish, right? Paul says in Romans 2.16, according to my gospel. That's without dispute. Paul said it. But Paul calls the same gospel which he describes in Romans the gospel of God in Romans 1.1. In Romans 1.9, he calls it the gospel of his son. In Romans 1.16, he calls it the gospel of Christ. In Romans 10.15, quoting Isaiah, he calls it the gospel of peace. In Isaiah 10.16, Isaiah is quoted as saying, Yahweh, who has believed our report? Paul calls it the gospel of God in Romans 15.16. He calls it the gospel of Christ, again in Romans 15.19. And he calls it my gospel, again in Romans 16.25. In Romans 1, 15, 10, 16, 11, 28, and 15, 20, he simply calls it the gospel. So how many gospels does Paul present in Romans? Does he have five different gospels? Or does he have one gospel, which he calls by all those things? It's Paul's gospel. It's the gospel of Christ. It's the gospel of God. Well, Isaiah has the same attitude, right? Isaiah says to Yahweh that it's our report. It's not Yahweh's report. It's our report. Because when we believe it and we accept it, we have an ownership stake in it also. Because we are also heirs of the covenant. So if it's the gospel of Christ, and I want to consider myself a Christian and a follower of Christ, it's my gospel too. Because I'm going to help spread that gospel because it's the gospel of Christ. And Paul acknowledges that. And Graber's being a hypocrite, because he doesn't um, want us to take Isaiah out of the Bible, because he called it our report. 
Yeah, you know, it's hypocritical. It, it's um, Graber is throwing everything, including the kitchen sink, onto the pile of counts with which he creates an indictment against Paul, hoping to make something stick, just like a government prosecutor, right? He's a false accuser. Paul's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and, and he's doing it to the people of the kingdom. And that could be demonstrated in Paul's letters and in history and in the Old Testament, which was the, what would set out the objective of the spread of the gospel to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So, so it, it's, it's, a ridiculous, it's another ridiculous, sophistic um, piece of drivel, right? Absolutely. But haven't we come to expect all that from Graber? He's a clown. Well, well, right, but this is what we have to present this because this is the substance of Paul bashing, and there's a whole lot of people in Christian identity who were caught up in Paul bashing. And it's that, the, that this substance shows how ridiculous Paul bashing is. When we get to the, 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 um, the articles published by Clayton Douglas, it, it gets better because the arguments against Paul are, are craftier and, and they're more sophisticated, but they're still drivel, and they still don't hold water. Well, would you like to, um, in, in, in the next section of, of his document, Graver simply um, repeats his accusations against Paul concerning Galatians 4.14, which he which we covered at length last week. Yet you might want to skip on to um, reference O, right. right? Reference O. Graber states, Paul tells us in Galatians one six through nine. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Parenthesis Graber's words, meaning the gospel of Paul, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Paul claims that his doctrine is infallible and the Galatians must accept it or be accursed. Is the gospel of Paul the same as the gospel of Jesus Christ? Graeber claims that Paul is forcing his own gospel and not Christ's upon the Galatians, right? Paul says differently in Galatians 1.7, assuring that this gospel he preaches is the gospel of Christ. Is it proper to curse or consider cursed those who would deny the gospel of Christ. And, 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 and well, I would say that, of course it is. Let me read Galatians 1.7 first. Which is no other except there are some who are agitating you and wish to pervert the gospel of Christ or the good message of the anointed in the Christogonia New Testament. Paul says that it's the gospel of Christ. It, it's Graeber who, who's twisting his words, right? Who, 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 it's Graeber who is insisting 
that it's not the gospel of Christ. Now, Paul is already equated all throughout the book of Romans, the gospel of Christ, with his gospel. His gospel is the gospel of Christ. He, he tells us in, in the book of Acts, at the end of the book of Acts, that he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, that he's bound in these chains for the hope of Israel, not for Israel and the Gentiles, for the hope of Israel. And, and an examination of Paul's letters surely would reveal that his gospel was the gospel of Christ. But Graeber won't do that objectively. He can't. He doesn't have the tools, and he has an, a, he has an agenda and a bias, which, which is evident in that agenda. The, the, um, Peter calls those who have forsaken the right way cursed children. He's a cursed people who have forsaken the gospel of Christ, which is the right way. Christ himself says of the goats, depart from me, ye cursed. Those who reject the God, that's Matthew twenty-five forty-one. Those who reject, who refuse to follow the gospel of Christ are accursed. Was Paul's doctrine infallible? As, as Graeber tries to to accuse Paul of believing that his doctrine was infallible. A study, an honest study of Paul's letters reveals, I can't find where, it, where there's any fault on Paul's part when we compare Paul's letters with the prophets and with the four Gospels. In places, Paul's mere humanness is, his mere humanity is certainly revealed and Paul, at times himself, admits that. There are places in his epistle to the Corinthians where he had to answer questions which were posed by the Corinthians. That's why he wrote the epistle, where he said, I speak as a man. And where he said, this is my opinion, basically. And he said those things because the Corinthians had posed questions concerning marriage and concerning virginity, which were not, for which Paul could not find examples for, gui for guidance in the Old Testament, in the Scriptures. If there's no example in the Scriptures and you have to give somebody advice, then you give them the best advice that you can from a Christian perspective. That's what Paul did. He, he repeatedly said, not God, but I, Paul. In fact, he said that a few times, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, he did. He said, not God, but I say, blah, blah, blah. And, and that was another indication where he was did not have an example from Scripture to um, to demonstrate the advice or the point that he was trying to make and he gave the best advice possible from his heart and told them that it came from him and not from the Scripture. Right. That doesn't mean he's saying, here's the gospel according to Paul. Ha, 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 you must obey it. He's saying, well, we really don't have an answer, but I, your trusted friend Paul, think this is the best option. Well, well right, exactly. And, and, and trying to fulfill a pastoral role if I had to give somebody advice and had a clear example from Scripture, they would get that example from Scripture. 
But if there was no example in Scripture, I would have to give them the best advice that I could from my heart based on what I know of Scripture, but, but it's from me. It's not from Scripture. And that's the way it is, and we encounter those situations all the time. Scripture is not the IRS code. It's not all-encompassing. It doesn't regulate every little detail and every little possible detail of life like the Pharisees tried to do. That, that's Phariseeism. That's why we have to live by the Spirit, because we're not Pharisees. That's why we have Ten Commandments. That's all we need. But when, but when this nation was founded, we had state constitutions. Well, we had legal codes with very little legislation, and we had Ten Commandments. That's all men need. All men need is an agreement to live in peace with each other in Ten Commandments. You follow those Ten Commandments, and you can't damage your neighbor. You can't if you follow those Ten Commandments in the spirit of the law which is basically found in those Ten Commandments. You don't need anything more. You don't covet your, na your neighbor's house and goods, and you don't pervert his children and, and, and debauch his wife, and, and you, you can't hurt each other. And, and we would live a lot better than, than, than we do today with um, 40,000 pages of IRS code and, and 10 zillion other laws and, and regulations and 500,000 agencies to, to, to breeze down our throats to make sure we're doing everything good. Today, we live in a pharisaical world, right? And who can know all those laws? How can you make certain that throughout the day you're not in violation of some new code or some new statute? And people want to talk about how, oh, we can't obey the the Bible, we don't need a theocracy, we don't need all those laws. So instead of having 700 of God's laws, they'd rather have five or six million pharisaical Jew IRS FedGov laws. Right. Well, well, the bottom line is in several places, Paul said, I speak as a man. He said, this is my opinion, basically. He, he said, not God, but I, meaning that he, he did not have a scriptural example to draw on that he could simply quote so he gave the best advice that he could as a man. He was, he, he was recognizing his own humility when he said those things. And, and in contrast, if you read the papal bulls that the, the Catholic popes had issued, well, well the, the attitude there is that they are God on earth and, and that their word is infallible. And, and that Paul did by no means took that attitude, adopted that attitude. Would you like to move on to reference P? Reference P. Graber states, concerning the Apostle Paul, we read the words of Luke, Paul's constant companion during their ministry, in Acts chapter 9, telling us of the miraculous conversions of Saul of Tarsus where he purportedly received his commission as an apostle of Jesus Christ. The problem with this scenario is that there is absolutely no evidence of this event except the words of Paul himself via his publicity agent. Now, and, and all the Paul bashers have to do this, right? But when you, when you want to throw Paul out of the Bible, Luke has to go with it. So I guess Luke tagged along in the, in the ministry of Jesus, but he... He wasn't really supposed to be there, and Jesus made a mistake by trusting someone as untrustworthy as Luke. 
Well, well, I'm sorry, but but you're you're placing Luke wrong, right? Luke appears in Scripture in Acts chapter 16. And he's Paul's constant companion from that time forward. All right. But but that that doesn't discredit Luke. He he's probably one of the um what one of the earliest Greek disciples of Christianity at Antioch because that's where he encounters Paul. That's where Luke first appears in scripture. And and Anti- that that's right after the first that that's right after the the um the stoning of Stephen and and the first Pentecost and we see the um the, the Christian congregations at Antioch from um I believe from Acts chapter seven and through Acts chapter fourteen there's a disputed Antioch we have Judaizers at Antioch who want to force the the um, Greek Christian converts to be circumcised and follow the laws of Moses. And that's where we have the meeting of Paul and Barnabas with Peter and James and the other apostles in Acts chapter 15. And Luke appears in Acts chapter 16. All right. So Graber's just totally tossing out Luke then. Well, well, yes, and Paul bashers have to toss out Luke because Luke is um, Paul's constant companion from Acts chapter 16 all the way through the, the end of Paul's life. And Paul even states in 2 Timothy that, that Luke's about the only one left with him. All right. This, oh, I'll step back here. The problem with this scenario is that there's absolutely no evidence of this event except the words of Paul himself via his publicity agent. This event is presented again in the 22nd and 27th chapters of Acts. There is no other Bible record of this event and not a word to be found in secular history. Why would there be a word found in secular history? It's not a secular event. What, is Paul going to go up to a Roman centurion and explain what just happened and they're going to write down, you know, um, Saul of Tarsus converted by Jesus to now um, Paul? Well, well, right. This, This is all ridiculous, right? And then he goes on, accept the claim of Paul himself. We know that Jesus selected his 12 disciples and commissioned them to preach the gospel of the kingdom, but Jesus did not select, or do we have any record of him commissioning any of the professed apostles, even as Luke and Paul professed to be apostles of Christ? I likewise make that claim. Am I telling the truth? Are Luke and Paul telling us the truth? Jesus Christ tells us in Matthew 7:16, "Ye shall know them by their fruits. And again in 1 John 4, 1, beloved Believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Well, who commissioned Graber? Well, well right. I, I demonstrated in my Luke program last night in, in, in presenting Luke chapter 21 that there is actually prophecy in Luke not recorded in any other gospel of concerning the destruction of Jerusalem That was basically fulfilled word for word in history, exactly the way Luke wrote it. If Luke wrote this prophecy, if Luke recorded this prophecy, and it was fulfilled word for word, exactly the way Luke wrote it, and nobody else recorded this prophecy, it's only in Luke, then Luke must be a, a, um, inspired by God in order to have done that. He, he has to be. 
because Luke recorded the, the prophetic words of God, which were fulfilled. He's a true prophet because those words were fulfilled. They weren't recorded elsewhere. The destruction of Jerusalem, as foretold by Christ, was not um, recorded in that manner in the other Gospels, in, in the manner in which Luke recorded it. And it so was are we- fulfilled. It was fulfilled precisely as Luke recorded it, and, and I demonstrated that last night. So Graber then expects that were they just accept that Luke's a false prophet, even though the prophecy was perfectly fulfilled, and then we just allow him to toss Luke out, you know, the, the window. Well, well, right, but if we judge Luke by his fruits, then we can't throw him out. And if we judge Graber by his fruits, well, we've already, we have to throw him out almost immediately. Yes, we do. Graber states there is no evidence of Paul's road to Damascus event outside of the Bible, and of course that's true. But there's no evidence or mention of many things biblical outside of the Bible. And therefore, Graeber's argument here is just ridiculous. It's inane. The event would not be mentioned outside of Acts for the same reason that Paul was not mentioned in the Gospels, because it would be um, out of time, right? Um, The same reason Paul is not mentioned in the the Catholic epistles of James and and, um, Jude and, and John, except that Paul's mentioned in 2 Peter. Returning to to Peter, by saying the things which Peter said of Paul, we may assuredly infer that Peter accepted Paul's accounts, including the account of the Road to Damascus event, because Peter upheld the writings of Paul into Peter. That James accepted Paul's person, and that's recorded only in Acts, but it also infers as much. And, And Graeber offers a different approach to the same argument which had failed him earlier, where where Graeber claims to have gotten his spiritual sustenance from Peter and and then ignores Peter's testimony of Paul, which is, you know, exposes Graeber as as a hypocrite. There's no historical attestation of any of the events of the first Pentecost in secular history, the stoning of Stephen, Peter's vision, that there's no attestation of many things outside of the book of Acts in the Bible, but Christians accept all of those things. There's not even, and and Graeber doesn't question those things. There's no record of the visit of the Magi anywhere in secular history, so do we dismiss the Gospel of Matthew? There's no record of the baptism of Christ except in the Gospels. That there's so, no record of that in secular history. That there's no record of, of, of most of the New Testament events outside of the New Testament. So right here, Graeber's engaging in a non sequitur, isn't he? Because there's no record of this outside the Bible, therefore it did not occur. Well, it doesn't naturally follow. Well, well right, it doesn't naturally follow because the, the Bible is the only... The, the, the writings... The Bible is not one book, Right. Matthew is one book. The Gospel of Matthew is one book. The Gospel of Mark is another book. Somebody put them together and called them the Bible, but they're actually two separate and distinct witnesses to roughly the same events. Right. So 
now Graeber then seems to be becoming a, he's a secularist. He's demanding secular verification of biblical events. Well, well, right, he is. That now we can have secular verification that a lot of those people existed. We can't right. have secular verification, for instance, of of, of the, the the death of James in in sixty two A.D. is recorded by Josephus. I think it was sixty two A.D. It may have been sixty one. Right? Uh, I'm going off the top of my head. So so James was killed in Jerusalem. Shortly after Paul was arrested and, and sent to, um, to Rome. Well, well, by that we know that James lived in Jerusalem for 30 years after the crucifixion. So, so we can corroborate things like that, right, from, from the works of Josephus, from certain inscriptions. I mean, we've had inscriptions with Pontius Pilate's name found on them and certain other New Testament figures. We know that Gallio was a proconsul from Roman records. But, but we don't have um, secular historical verification of most of the New Testament records. So, so do we dismiss the entire New Testament? Because Graeber would dismiss the book of Acts? Or, or actually he would only dismiss one event in the book of Acts? Which is ridiculous. And we have records that, you know, St. Andrew was martyred, don't we? Well, well, we do have, you know, verification of the book of Acts in, in, in the epistles. Well, we have verification of parts of the book of Acts in, in the revelation of Christ. Well, where, where the, um, for instance, the church at Ephesus is addressed, and that church was founded in the book of Acts by Paul. Now, now, there's no record of anybody else founding a Christian church at Ephesus. There's only a record of Paul founding that church. And as believing Christians, we don't demand secular verification and validation of all of our beliefs, do we? Right. Now, now what we have is we have many writings of early Christian writers from the 2nd and 3rd centuries, and none of them question the events, any of the events in the book of Acts. None of them call not, none of the early Christian writers that I've ever read question the events as they are outlined in the Book of Acts. So we have no reason to doubt the events of the Book of Acts, except that Graeber does not like the Road to Damascus event and the way it's recorded. Now, now we're going to examine the Road to Damascus event in great detail when we get to the Paul bashing articles published by Clayton Douglas. Great did not afford us that opportunity. Part Q. Yes, go on. Part Q. Paul seems to have been obsessed with the world of mystery. First we are told of his mysterious conversion. And then we read in 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 8, it is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth, such an one caught up to the third heaven, and I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth, how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, 
which is not lawful for man to utter. The mysterious claim of Paul having a connection with some entity of the third heaven means he was not in communication with Jesus Christ, who was sitting on the right hand of God, which is the seventh heaven, the book of Enoch. To the contrary, we find that the third heaven is described as between corruptibility and incorruptibility, with the northern side manifesting magic-making enchantments and devilish witchcrafts. In light of what we have presented thus far, I ask the question, was Paul motivated and inspired by the spirit of Jesus Christ? You've just read one of the most childish arguments that Graeber has ever produced here, right? Uh, now, now there's magic in third heavens and seventh heavens and sixth heavens? Well, well, right. It, it's, it, he wasn't in connect. What, what does Christ have to do with Paul's explanation of this vision? And, and why do we think that Christ is still sitting at the right hand of God in the seventh heaven that he hasn't moved in 2,000 years? Why do we take that language literally? And, and where does Graeber get that language from? And, and, and it's interesting the way Paul, the, the way Graeber writes this. That this is all sheer sophistry. There's nothing worse than this, right? First, we are told of his mysterious conversion. And then we read in 2 Corinthians 12. Well, well what does 2 Corinthians 12 come right after Acts chapter 9? Uh, I mean, there's 60 chapters in between. In, in the Bible, there's about 60 chapters, 60 Bible chapters in between Acts chapter 9 and 2 Corinthians 12, right? Rhetorically speaking. It's clear in the Revelation. In the Revelation, the Apostle John had the same type of what, what I can only call in modern terms an out-of-body experience, which Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The Apostle John describes the same type of experience, and it's mentioned in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. And, and Graeber is faulting Paul for describing such an experience, but he's a hypocrite if he missed the one which John described, which was which was very similar. It, it was a, a, um, a description of him being in the spirit and, and not in the body. He was in the spirit, and, and he went up to heaven in the spirit. Well, well, Paul describes the same thing, and Paul's faulted, and Graeber doesn't say anything about John. So, so this, 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 we throw out the whole Bible if we have to throw out 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Well, we have to get rid of the Revelation too. Otherwise, we're being hypocritical based on Graeber's argument here. Now, now this, that this, um, that this seventh heaven, Christ sitting in the seventh heaven, that's found nowhere in Scripture. It's found nowhere in Scripture. Well, when I wrote this in, in 2005, when I wrote my arguments against Graeber, uh, I had wrote that, because um, Graeber cites Enoch, right, that I couldn't find his statement corroborated in one Enoch and I wrote that Graeber may be referencing the Enoch found in the Lost Books of the Bible and the Forgotten Books of Eden. And I didn't state which Enoch that was, but that's actually the secrets of Enoch. That's actually the Slavonic Enoch known as Tu-Enoch. And I didn't have that available when I wrote this, but now I do. And I found that that's exactly what Graeber is quoting. He's quoting the Slavonic Enoch known as Tu-Enoch. And that um, writing of Enoch is no older than the first century A.D. And it may not even really be that old. Now, the seventh heaven idea is also found, and, and this is Clifton's research, in, in the ascension of Isaiah. 
and it's found in other obscure apocryphal literature, and it's found in the Talmud and in other known Jewish mystical literature, but it's not found in scripture. And Graeber is obviously following the mysteries which he condemns Paul for. It's Graeber that that, um, has evidently read all of this Jewish apocryphal mystery literature and is quoting it and and, um, putting God in the seventh heaven. That's where that comes from. It comes from the the secrets of Enoch, which are a rather late apocryphal work and not connected to the real Enoch at all. And and that's what Graeber's quoting. So so he's doing what what he um, accuses Paul of doing. It amazes me that Graeber would argue that Christ is sitting on the right hand of God, which is the seventh heaven, as if Christ, as if we're to take such a passage literally and, and um, imagine that he hasn't moved in 2000. I, I mean, that's childish. It, it's Graeber must think his readers are idiots to even utter such a ridiculous argument. Now, now Paul, um, Paul does mention several different mysteries in his letters, but he's hardly obsessed with anything but the truth, which is the revelation of those mysteries. Even Christ said that he came to um, reveal things kept secret since the foundation of the world. The mysteries which Paul refers to have to do with the mystery of iniquity in the Edomite Jews as the children of Satan, which Paul elucidates in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, or the fact that the children of Israel are favored simply because of genetic reasons, which is a mystery which Paul elucidates in Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, I mean, yes, there are mysteries which Paul refers to. They're mysteries because they're simply not commonly known. They were not commonly known because the children of Israel were prophesied to be blind as to their identity, to be blind as to the, the, the promises and the covenants, and, and that's because of their, they were put off for their sin. A mystery is basically something not fully understood, and Paul was explaining those things to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So, so that, that's Graeber is just, it, it's just more sophistic dribble coming from the mouths of, of one of the most popular Paul bashers. And, and it's a sad thing, but, but it has to be addressed. We, we, can, um, we, we can end this here, and, and we can continue with um, Mr. Graber next week. This is probably a good breaking point, and, and we'll save the next section, which is Graber's references to the record of the secular authors next week. And, and we'll see that... Um, the most glaring problem with the next section of Graeber is, is that he, he, he lists three writers from which he gets criticisms of Paul of Tarsus, and he calls it the record of the secular authors, and one of the authors is a Jew and a rabbi named Jacqueline Prince, and Jacqueline Prince is not what I would consider to be a secular author. And, and, and Graeber actually omits that Prince is a rabbi, I believe. He doesn't, um, he, he doesn't tell us that Prince 
is a rabbi, if my memory... Oh, no, I'm sorry. He calls him Dr. Jacqueline Prince, president of the American Jewish Congress, but oh. doesn't tell us that he's a rabbi. Now, Sounds like a wonderful source, though. Well, well, right. Well, Jacqueline Prince is also the primary source for the Paul bashing material of W.G. Finlay in South Africa. And it's incredible, but but there's a lot of people in Christian identity caught up in this garbage, and it it's got to be addressed. It just has to be. It's it's um gives us the the chance to discuss these things and air them out. And and I pray that some of the Paul Bashers are listening, because they they need to cleanse their mind of all of this drivel. All right, next week then. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. I'll be here next week with um, on Friday night with Luke chapter 21, part 2, and that should be interesting. And, and we'll be here to finish up the, the, um, the, the Graber, How Holy Is Your Bible section of our address against the Paul Bashers. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. And good night. Thank you for having me on. Praise Yahweh. Thank you. Oh,